0: Hey, y'all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon to be announced store. Your donations will also be tax deductible, as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful, and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now, on with the show.
1: No, that doesn't say enough about the unity of what the incarnation involves, that God became, the word of God became human flesh, John 1. This happened in Mm -hmm. one person. And so full deity and full humanity came together in this one person. The technical term we use for that is the hypostatic union. Mm -hmm. And what the definition of the Council of Chalcedon does is spell that out. And it often spells it out in somewhat negative or boundary setting ways. You can't say this. Mm -hmm. You can't say that. You can't say this. You can't say that. Acknowledging that at the heart of this event and our faith is a mystery that we can confess and it leads us to worship, but we can't fully understand Mm -hmm. at our human level the way that, of course, God understands it.
2: Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss the newest and best books in the broader Christian tradition with some of the most respected seminary and college professors, pastors, theologians, authors, and more. We hope these book club episodes introduce solid theological works to those who want to read but don't know where to start or who to trust. You'll be introduced to authors you know and many others you don't from various theological traditions, but all under the broader tent of our shared creedal tradition. All of these authors and books help us to do the same thing. They remind us of how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone, yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt Grace Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today is a book club episode brought to us by Zondervan Academic, and our guest today is Dr. Daniel Trier. He is the author of the book that we are talking about today, Lord Jesus Christ is the name of the book. It's within the New Studies and Dogmatics series by Zondervan. Great series. Um, this book is a study of the doctrine of Christ that is biblical and historical, evangelical and ecumenical, conceptually clear and contextually relevant. Uh, the endorsement that I will read from a guest that we've had on before is Jeremy Treat. This time, uh, we also have a. a there is also a, an endorsement from Matthew Barrett we've had on before, but I'll read Jeremy Treats. He says this about the book: "There is not a." more important question to ponder than who is Jesus. In Lord Jesus Christ, Dan Trier offers an answer that is both evangelical and ecumenical. While acknowledging and engaging with contemporary Christ- Christological debates, Trier refreshingly lets scripture set the agenda for the doctrine of Christ. He does so not only by providing theological exegesis of key texts but also by following the narrative arc of scripture that begins with the eternal communion of the triune god and is consummated with the union of christ and the church this book equips the church to declare with more depth and awe that jesus christ is lord So please go to our show notes, everyone. Uh, There's a link to Zondervan Academic. It'll take you right to this book within the series. You can check out uh, this book within the series and the whole the whole new studies and dogmatic series also. And then also just other uh, contact reminders. If you're listening to this through your podcast app, a friendly reminder, you can also subscribe to us on YouTube and watch these videos. If that's just the easier media for you, um, you know, there's also we're pretty active on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to engage with us on a daily basis and with updates and just uh, just communication and what we're, what we're up to. And then there's a link to find a church. Uh, if you are needing to find a church to call home, we have a local church finder uh, uh, finding a confessional reform church near you. Um, and then there's just some other information on our show notes, and then our website and the podcast network that we uh, started, uh, Confessional Podcast Network. So check out all that stuff. But let's get into this this uh, very important topic the the telos of everything, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to have uh, let Peter further introduce Doctor Daniel Trier today.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure to introduce to our audience Doctor Daniel Trier, who's the Gunther Nodler. I hope I'm pronouncing both of those right, (laughs) professor of theology at Wheaton College, where he's been faculty since 2001. Uh, This is my alma mater. Well, I guess technically my alma mater. I only spent a year there and then transferred to Biola, but I've loved Wheaton. We've had a ton of Wheaton professors on, but it's a pleasure having you on, Dr. Trier. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Yeah, so first question, this is Icebreaker. We don't send these questions over. I've been wondering, did you in... Brandon Crow get together and say, you know what, we're going to publish the same titled book within two weeks of each other.
1: How did that work? No, I have not been able to meet Brandon, and Zondervan and I had a lot of fun deciding what to do about the title once we saw Brandon's in a catalog. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that as a New Testament scholar, like me, he's trying to do a lot of serious work with scripture from a Reformed perspective on this doctrine, so I would... Expect that there's a lot of happy overlap um, beyond the title.
0: Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, and it's it'll be funny because this this comes out two weeks after we have an interview with Dr. Brendan Crow on the same exact title. <laughs> okay, so, so he's yeah. already given you all the answers. Then. <laughs> yeah. We're kind of wondering when people listen to this one to like hold up, did they make a mistake and like <laughs> give the did they like copy and paste this title? But no, 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 this is the different series, different publisher, but basically same topic.
2: Yeah. Most important topic ever. So it's okay. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So beyond your uh, Wheaton College academic bio, beyond the books you've written, Dr. Trier, tell tell our audience a little bit more about Dan Trier.
1: I grew up on a farm in Ohio. I was part of a Christian home. And so my parents used Bible quizzing uh, and other things to nurture me in the faith. So I memorized 13 books of scripture all through in the okay. six years between seventh and 12th grade which was wow. very formative for me yeah wow. so it was a missions trip to Mexico City as part of that uh, process so that's me growing up I'm now married to Amy black uh Trier she's Amy black here on campus she's huh. a professor of political science we huh. met here in new faculty orientation many many years ago we have a Teenage daughter Anna, who is a delight to us, uh, even in the midst of learning to drive at the moment. <laughs> we are we are part of Emmanuel Presbyterian Church, which is an EPC congregation in yep. Warrenville, just to the west of Wheaton. I am a huge Detroit Tigers fan, so okay. and Lions and Red Wings. I've okay. learned to live with disappointment.
2: Yeah, you have a love hate <laughs> relationship for the
1: past few years? Yeah. yeah.
2: My Seahawks just beat you guys yesterday. Yes. Yes, they that. did.
1: <laughs> uh, you yeah. started
2: off the season great beating Kansas City. Well, huh? yeah,
1: everybody's on the hype train, you know. But as a Lions fan who uh, is now 50 years old, I've learned not not to get <laughs> yep. too excited. Right. Yep.
0: Yep. Preseason means basically nothing. All the preseason stuff means
1: basically nothing until you get to the season. Yep. And, you know, losing to the Seahawks by an unfortunate interception is... It's not disgraceful.
0: Yeah. It's it's more like the the Detroit Lions beat themselves than the Seahawks beat them. Well it's, Yeah. I, it's I, a regular I, can't, I can't say that with Nick here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a regular you, season
2: game. You can tell I'm
0: trying to start a fight between Nick and Dan. So it's I'm gonna see the, if I can get there. The Seahawks I'm, should... I'm, ne-
1: I'm oh. never gonna fight to defend the Lions on. Oh, her. yeah. That's that's really <laughs> That's well, not a cause you go for.
2: To be fair, the Seahawks <laughs> missed two field goals during the game. It should not have even gone into overtime. Anyway, we'll go. get back to we'll get back to the.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this sorry is, this to cut you off. We have, see, I... we have fun on this show. We don't. Yeah. We talk about theology. But we talk about a bunch of other stuff around the. We we like humanizing our guests, not just these superhero authors, but these are real people who like bad teams. So it's don't
2: <laughs>
1: don't worry about it. Yeah, that's really dehumanizing this author, but anyway. <laughs>
2: so we didn't mean to uh cut you short on uh stopping with the lions. So if, keep uh going through your background and
1: uh uh that's most of um what's remotely interesting to tell. I read <laughs> read a lot and play bad golf. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that sounds like me. If I were
0: to play golf, I'd play it poorly.
2: Yeah. Well, we'd be good friends, so
1: that could happen. All you have to do is leave apostate Seattle and come to Chicago.
2: There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. So uh first question I have getting into this book is I kind of want to cover some terms. We do that a lot on our show because we have a really broad audience. We have people that are coming from, you know, just assume they're coming from scratch. They don't know terms and all that kind of stuff. So just even looking at the cover of the book, Re- new studies and dogmatics right there and in there people are hung up like I might not know what dogmatics really or has like a
0: negative taste in people's mouth like oh you're dogmatic about this this is a bad thing to be
2: and people might not know really how to articulate the definition so maybe with that and then how the Lord Jesus Christ fits into that term dogmatics so give please define dogmatics and why this series by Zondervan has a volume dedicated to Jesus within that.
1: Well, dogmatics has the term dogma nested in it. So we're dealing Mm. with binding church teaching, uh, church teaching that is agreed upon and authoritative for a particular church or set of churches. Mm. And usually it's seen as distinctively binding or authoritative because it is tied to the essence of the gospel. So it's core authoritative teaching. It's not more peripheral. It's, It's core in its importance in uh, telling us something crucial about the good news that the, that the Bible conveys to us. So it's theology done in a kind of systematic way, but trying to pre- present a coherent contemporary um, version and defense of authoritative church teaching that is central to the gospel. And Jesus is absolutely central to the gospel. So If uh, we're learning what the dogma is from confessions of the church, most of those confessional or creedal statements, whether it's the ecumenical ones like the Nicene Creed or more particular ones like the Westminster Confession of Faith, they're going to have articles on God's incarnation in Jesus Christ um, as really crucial to the dogma that they are helping us to confess. And so this series absolutely needs to have a volume on the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so one of the foundational things in your book and something you talk about throughout your book, so I think it's helpful to bring up on the front end is this term and your employment of what's called the theological interpretation of scripture, which might be new to a lot of our audience. It's been a thing for a long time and you're just bringing this up. What 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 is theological interpretation of Scripture? What is particularly helpful about theological interpretation of Scripture as it relates to constructing our doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ?
1: Well, the adjective theological emphasizes that we're uh, interpreting Scripture in relation to God, God as the primary author of the text and God as the primary subject matter of the text. And so God as the one that we are dealing with in a very dynamic, lively, spiritual way when we interpret the text, that focus on God-centered biblical interpretation then emphasizes three particular contexts of interpretation, canon, creed, and culture. Mm -hmm. I've said more about that in a book on introducing theological interpretation of scripture that I wrote. Uh, a long time ago. So, canon, we're going to interpret particular passages in relation to the whole of Scripture as a unified word from God telling one story of salvation. Uh, Creed, we're going to interpret uh, particular passages of Scripture in relation to core doctrines, dogma Mm -hmm. that the church confesses. And that could be the rule of faith as expressed in the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition, the ecumenical creeds regarding Jesus Christ, but it can also be refracted through more particular confessions of particular Protestant churches. We mentioned Westminster just a little while ago as an example. And then culture as a third context, the cultures in which the church today is seeking to interpret the scriptures for the sake of ministering the gospel. This doesn't mean that we can simply read culture back into Scripture, or for that matter, the creeds either, or just read from any old passage of Scripture onto um, another passage of Scripture. But it does mean that these contexts of interpretation guide the questions that we ask, the points of focus from which we come at the interpretation of particular passages. So in this case, I'm interpreting A particular passage of Scripture at the start of each chapter of the book and trying to interpret that passage of Scripture in relation to the rest of Scripture, in relation to core doctrine uh, in the creeds and confessions about Jesus Christ, and in relation to certain contemporary questions that have arisen, whether it be challenges to the virgin birth of Mm -hmm. Christ or um, interests in anthropology these days, all sorts of questions about what it really means to be authentically human. Well, how does that relate to God becoming incarnate as a human being in Jesus Christ, right? We've got lots of contemporary cultural questions that might cause us to go back to scripture and read it afresh in relation to the story of Jesus. Yeah.
0: Maybe a bridge question from what I just asked into what Nick's about to ask because when Nick asks builds off of my question, I can imagine somebody asking this when you answer what I just asked, um, either asking this or people have had this asked to them. Um, is this a proper way of reading the Bible where you kind of spill in all the theology on top of it and let that form or like, cause people will generally say like, it's me and my Bible. Or I'm just going to read this as if I'm the only one who's ever read this without history's help. Just, I need to read this. So if, if, uh, if that's how somebody comes to the text, what would you tell them? Like, okay, this is, This is not me reading into the text. This is me being formed by the text in the text form itself.
1: Well, as Protestants, we need to come to the scriptures with a commitment to the priesthood of all believers, but also an understanding of the church and how Christ relates to the church as the one mediator uh, between God and humanity. And those understandings are going to shape the Ways that we use both academic scholarship regarding scripture and personal spiritual experience in relation to the interpretation of scripture. We're not going to want to rule out personal spiritual experience mm-hmm. or academic scholarship, but neither one of those should supplant the church reading the scriptures as part of the means of grace. Mm-hmm in a way that the classic Protestant understanding of the clarity of Scripture, the priesthood of all believers, and so forth conveys. So my understanding of TIS, which admittedly may not be everyone's, just as my understanding of how to use biblical scholarship and how to incorporate personal piety in the process, is going to be shaped by a Protestant account of word and spirit and how God ministers the word and the spirit uh, to and through his church. Gotcha. That's good. As you probably know, we talk a
0: lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego, That offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education, coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor scholars with decades of ministry experience train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to an admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474 or log on to www. W-S-C-A-L-D-U, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, his gospel, and his church.
2: So <clears throat> you, you talk a lot about the Chalcedonian definition of Christology. So I want to go into that because this helps build off of what you're explaining, what Peter asked, to get a, a little bit more like into what we're talking about. So uh, again, going back to an audience that's starting from scratch, that doesn't might not know any of this stuff yet. Um, What is the, what is the Chalcedonian definition? Why is that a thing? Why do you bring that up? Uh, You speak of Christology and why is this the standard for which it is foundationally dogmatic going to a Chalcedonian definition?
1: Chalcedon is a church council that took place in the year 451, and it is in a sense the apex of a long process of church councils trying to identify what's the church's binding authoritative teaching regarding the person of Jesus Christ, regarding who he is. We would like to think in a certain sense, at least as Protestants, that Uh, who Jesus Christ is, is clear in the New Testament itself. Mm -hmm. So we have passages in the Gospel of John, which seem clearly to indicate that Jesus was fully divine. Mm -hmm. Um, The word uh, who was with God and was God, John 1, for example. We've got tons of passages in the New Testament, which indicate also that he was fully human. He ate and drank and slept and was tired and so on and so forth. Well, how are we going to put that together? It's one thing to make both of those affirmations, but it's not simple uh, to figure out how they go together and to do that, particularly in a context with certain philosophical assumptions, uh, like the Greco Roman world had, which tended to devalue uh, the human body. Mm-hmm and to worry that direct contact between the divine being and change and suffering and so forth, things that go with the human body, would would be under suspicion. So the church had to sort out how these things went together in a complicated missional and philosophical context, and that, that took a while. Uh, there was lots of teaching on the ground that was probably pretty faithful and Low-key, I guess we could say, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, for the first couple centuries, but uh, gradually some, uh, we would call them heretical views now from the standpoint of history, some deviant views uh, came forward and got more and more attention. And the church's situation with respect to the empire changed substantially in the 300s with the uh, conversion of Emperor Constantine to the faith. And so now he had a public interest, maybe not altogether altruistic, but maybe partly (laughs) altruistic,
0: um,
1: in having these doctrines defined in a publicly shareable and set way to unify the church in the midst of seeking to maintain the unity Of the empire. So the first Christological councils in a more developed sense happened in the 300s. And there was a lot of back and forth that makes for kind of entertaining but depressing uh, history reading. But Chalcedon is the culmination of that process in 451. And it basically agreed upon three essentials Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is fully divine, he's fully human. Those are his two natures, Uh fully divine and fully human. And these two natures came to be united in one incarnate person, Jesus Christ. So you can't say, yeah, he's fully divine and fully human by being kind of, you know, schizophrenic would be the old (laughs) uh, not so politic word by being sort of two personed. No, that doesn't say enough about the unity of what the incarnation involves, that God became, the word of God became human flesh, John 1. This happened in Mm -hmm. one person. And so full deity and full humanity came together in this one person. The technical term we use for that is the hypostatic union. Mm -hmm. And what the definition of the Council of Chalcedon does is spell that out, and it often spells it out in somewhat negative or boundary-setting ways. You can't say this, you mm-hmm. can't say that, you can't say this, you can't say that. Acknowledging that at the heart of this event and our faith is a mystery that we can confess and it leads us to worship, but we can't fully understand mm-hmm. at our human level the way that, of course, God understands it. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's like another term that you I think you bring up and people might hear is homoousius. Us-
1: homo Mm-hmm. Yes. So, uh, the son incarnate is of one being homo usios, with the father that is fully divine yeah. as every bit as eternal, powerful, loving, etc., uh, as God, the father. And so okay. the doctrine of the Trinity emerges from this too, right? Um, God, mm-hmm. the father, God, the son, and then God, the Holy spirit, likewise, homo usios, with the father and the son, we believe in one Lord, uh, the giver of life, um, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, that um, confession of the Trinity involving the deity and personhood of the Holy Spirit arises as part of this process of Christological definition.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you talk about as well, so going through both the doctrinal foundations, historical foundations, the scriptural foundations, and you, you've already talked about this during the our interview right now, but throughout your book that Jesus is the center. He's the mediator. He's the the covenant mediator, which is a, a fancy term of both old and new testaments <clears throat> uh, use covenant kind of the first half of the book and mediator um, more specifically in the last half. So how does this help? Like what is that? What is this? How does this relate to both testaments? Why is Jesus the covenant mediator and how does it help us understand the identity of Jesus and his relationship to the Triune Godhead. I know that's a lot of questions, so I'll break it down. So it's um, how is he the center of both testaments? How does he? Or how does that help us understand the identity of Jesus and his relation to the
1: Triune Godhead? So one of the developments in Christology over the last century or so has been a realization that we shouldn't split apart the person of Christ from the work of Christ. Mm-hmm. We come to understand the person of Christ, who he is, by what the Bible says about the work of Christ, by Mm -hmm. what he has done. That doesn't reduce the person to the work, but it does say that the work is the way that God, through the scriptures, reveals Mm -hmm. who the person is. Mediator is a crucial term in that regard. What a mediator does is relate two persons or groups. And in this case, we're not just talking about an intermediary, a go-between who is different from both sides. We're not talking about a third-party intermediary. We're talking about one who relates God and creatures. There's an asymmetry between God and creatures, not only in terms of creator and creatures, but also in terms of perfectly holy and utterly sinful. So we need a mediator to bring these together who's going to come from God's side, from God's very self, to bridge that gap, both the creator-creature gap and, most notably, the holiness-sin gap Mm -hmm. uh, that has happened since the fall. So as mediator, Christ relates God and creatures, especially God's people, uh, to God despite our finitude and fallenness. This uh, saving mediator must be divine because otherwise he could not reveal who God is and he could not rescue uh, fallen creatures from death. So it must be the divine logos, the word of God, uh, internal to the very being of God who is going to reveal to us, who's going to mediate to us um, revelation and redemption. And this mediator must be fully human so that we really come into contact with God in our broken, but now healed and forgiven humanity. Um, One other point then about how this holds the Testaments together, Old and New Testament, Um, God used Israel to prepare For the coming of the incarnate mediator through prophets priests and kings particularly Mm -hmm. these were more like intermediary figures Mm -hmm. uh, in a sense Mm -hmm. but they helped us to understand by way of preparation what the vocation of the ultimate mediator would be how the divine revelation would come to us prophetically how the divine rule and reign would come to us in uh the king, and um, how we would return to God uh, by way of the representation of a priest and appropriate sacrifice in the making of atonement. So prophets, priests, and kings in the story of Israel prepare for the coming of this mediator. And what is unique about Christ as mediator coming from God himself then is that he is prophet and priest and king in one person. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Israel's story, these were typically held apart. Uh, One was primarily a prophet or primarily a priest or primarily a king. There were very occasional partial overlaps, but some of those were not supposed to happen at all. But now this mediator is prophet and priest and king from the human side in one person. Mm. Mm. That's good.
2: Yeah, I'd like to dip into... Uh, my question would be response to errors that the church early on, uh, through the Chalcedonian Protestant definition, yeah. we're getting
0: positive definitions, but it's always helpful to have negative stuff too to kind of contrast it with.
2: Yeah, yeah. So what I'm getting at is early on in your book, you list five Christological crucial factors that go against the Chalcedonian Protestant definition of who Christ is. So it helps based on you listing those what those were those errors and then how the chalcedonian and protestant definitions reacted to those so if you don't mind uh, explain those five uh, crucial factors
1: well one way to think of the development of the of the creeds uh through the early centuries is to think of christologies being poured like through a sieve or through a funnel Mm. so that early on you get the widest errors now to us most easily recognizable. And then you get subtler forms of them as uh, time goes on and the councils winnow out errors. Mm -hmm. And all of the errors in one way or another are going to diminish either his full deity or his full humanity. So we're always going to see the tendencies of these things to err on one side or the other. So, uh, you know, the biggest aberration diminishing his humanity would be docetic Christologies that Mm -hmm. deny any actual humanity uh, tied to the divine Christ at all. Again, because in the Greco-Roman environment, they're worried about contaminating the divine through contact with bodilyness, change, suffering, and so on. So the docetic side loses the humanity of Christ. And uh, on the other side, there were early Jewish Christologies called the Ebionites that seem to have denied his deity, um, saying that he's a human Messiah with a special role in God's plan, but denying that he is in any sense coming from God himself. A century or two later, Arianism on that side denies his full deity, Mm -hmm. says he's Yes, he's divine, he's the son of God, but he's not eternally self-existent in the way that God the Father is. And so that's the longest-running heresy that generated the Nicene Creed in its first formulation, uh, decades of controversy after that, and it still comes back in modernity in various ways. So Arianism would be denying the full deity of Christ, and on the other side, Apollinarianism denies the full humanity of Christ, says, well, we know he has to have a human body and he has to be human in some sort of sense, but his mind or will has to be the divine logos coming in and replacing Mm. the human mind or will because otherwise he would be contaminated by sin. That sort of view sees the human mind or will as so contaminated by sin that in a sense, the incarnate Lord would not be able to redeem it. Eventually, the church recognized that's unbiblical, um, and it's a crucial problem for our salvation if we say that some part of human being is unredeemable, uh, even by the incarnate uh, creator. Well, by the Nicene Creed that was revised at Constantinople in 381, the two pillars of you must say he's fully divine and fully human are officially in place. What happens in the decades going up to Chalcedon in 451 then is how are we going to put these two natures together in one person? And there were various errors and overreactions to that that led Chalcedon to say it's not just that you say he's fully divine and fully human, but you also have to say he's fully divine and fully human in one person. And we may not be able to understand fully how that is, but we can say some things you can't say. Mm Mm-hmm that would cause you to diminish either the deity or the humanity or the unity of the person. And so that's what Calcedon does.
0: Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either 15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay. Those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be as we all work towards our mission originally bridging the gap to reform Christian theology.
2: Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder.
0: That's a beautiful transition into my next question. Cause I think this is middle-ish end-ish of your book that you really start pounding on this. Uh, you talk about EHC, which is early high Christology. So what, what is this? And then I, my, my guess is those who hear this okay if there's early high Christology that is recognized very early on, why did it take so long for them to finally officially recognize
1: that Christ is who he was? Yes yeah, so early high Christology is taking us back to the Bible but it's also taking us forward past the Enlightenment into trends in modern Christological scholarship and yeah. so we're we're having to go um, both backward and forward from the chalcedonian definition by high christology different people mean different things but what i mean and what most of the advocates of early high christology mean is fully divine Mm -hmm. in other words high christology would be saying christ is fully divine as well as fully human by early we mean um not just um in the creeds after the scriptures Mm -hmm. Not just in the Gospel of John, which a lot of modern scholarship takes to be very late, Mm -hmm. late 1st century or early 2nd century, and to have arisen in a more Hellenistic or Greco-Roman environment, not just uh, post-Scripture or not just late in Scripture in the Gospel of John, but earlier on in Paul's letters— in places in Hebrews, places in the Synoptic Gospels, you see evidence of Christ's pre-existence as divine and the incarnation. The word incarnation may only come from the word becoming flesh in John 1.14, but the concept of incarnation is there in lots of other New Testament passages. And some, and I would count myself in this camp and try to make a certain contribution to it in this book, Mm -hmm. some would say, It's not just there in the New Testament, but early high Christology goes back to the understanding of Jesus himself. Hmm. Jesus understood himself, even in his humanity, to be fully divine in light of how he understood who he was in fulfilling um, particularly Isaiah and Mm -hmm. certain scriptures there, that he is God with us, that he is the divine servant in human form. Uh, He is the child who is mighty God, Isaiah 9, and so on. And I think that the virgin birth actually helped him to that understanding of the significance of his identity in light of uh, the Old Testament scriptures, and particularly Isaiah. I can't prove that, but Mm -hmm. I try to make uh, an argument uh, making a reasonable case for that. Now, you might say, well, why does it make a difference how early the high Christology is, as long as we're willing to affirm what the creeds say and maybe find them in John chapter 1? I think it makes a difference in terms of the unity of New Testament teaching, the confidence that we have about the full deity of Christ, and the confidence that we have that Christ's deity is attached to his mission. It's essential to what he came to do. I think it's easy to think of him as just needing to become incarnate to provide a human sacrifice for yep. our sins, yep. or a human example for us to imitate, or uh, a striking uh, portrayal of God's love, or, you know, various um, things that are true enough in themselves, but that diminish the sense that he is God himself in human flesh, coming from God's own, inexhaustible love to accomplish our salvation. And our salvation is not just receiving forgiveness or an example to imitate or something like that, but it is coming to know God in himself. This is uh, this is eternal life, that they may know the true God, right? That's the Johannine theme here that I think is at stake. So if... High Christology goes back not just to the late New Testament, but to the heart of the New Testament. And even to Jesus himself, we have a more organic unity between who Jesus is in his person and what he does in his work, in what he teaches his apostles and what they teach us throughout the New Testament, and therefore in our sense of how his deity relates to our salvation. Mm,
2: That's really good. This is so helpful because a few things. Um, talking about the Chalced- Chalcedonian definition in four fifty one, that's uh, not saying that Chalcedonian de- definition brought a brand new look at who Christ is, and because uh, it goes against a, an objection of unbel- non Christians saying, "Hey, Christianity was some- way
0: later. This is a yeah. way later development."
2: Yeah, this is something that uh, they're just explaining what the bible says yeah it was the and-
0: disciples and disciples disciples and disciples 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 who then looked back at traditions like oh okay maybe we'll inject some of this into it
2: yeah and in- including too we're talking about early church history athanasius augustine irenaeus all these huge early church apostolic fathers um writing on the coattails of paul you know just responding to these heresies out there so in the first few centuries the church were early church were huge going against these uh, these heresies and uh we stand on the shoulders of the early church going against these heresies and these heresies are still there's nothing new under the sun i mean we're, we're still he- hearing uh from non-christians uh, uh some of these heresies that we could easily answer based on chalcedonian definition the creedal uh, explanations Augustine, Athanasians, those kind of things. Other religions really have a hard time understanding how God, how our God and savior came down as an infant, so vulnerable dependent on his mother, Mary, and then also suffered. They have a really hard time understanding how we do that, uh, how we worship that. So this, this really helps with your book, explaining the dogmatic understanding of Christ is fully God and fully man and why the mediator, why God uh, as mediator had to be fully divine, fully God, and fully man to be our savior. So sorry, I just wanted to kind of uh reflect on some
1: of that stuff with a statement. That's but, encouraging. Thanks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So to c- conclude, I some of our questions we like to pretend you're talking to an adult Sunday school. <laughs> I think it is just helpful because a lot of our audience, if we had to like sum it up in a somewhat generic way, it'd be adult Sunday school. Um So some of these people might not know these categories and some people might, um, might be brand brand new to this stuff or whatnot, but um, you might have talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. uh, We'll admit most people aren't probably reformed background. Even a lot of reformed people probably didn't grow up reformed. Uh, So everyone's kind of either relatively new to this robust theological tradition or just needs helpful reminders um, so we're all used to the telos of everything, especially our religion is Jesus Christ. So we're used to talking about him. Um, I think on a superficial level, a lot of people just only kind of stop at his more personal singular terms, how he makes me feel. He's like, yeah, of course he died on the cross for me. I don't know really how, what else to say. Um, but they're entirely unf- from unfamiliar with speaking of Jesus in robust, re- Bustly redemptive and Trinitarian terms of you kind of explaining in this book. Uh so uh most wonder why do these fancy theological terms and concepts matter? Is it just kind of something that a lot of really smart people in seminaries kind of nerd out about, or is this something important for the average Christian? I mean, a lot of people might just say, I just want to love Jesus and go on with my day. And um, but Can you kind of encourage the audience to dig into knowing more about our Lord and Savior, not just knowing of him about, you know, this this theological depth and richness?
1: Yeah, so uh, we'll see if I can be brief enough for an adult Sunday school. (laughs) (laughs) Never never my strength. Um, I think one answer is to talk about some phrases that animated the early church fathers who— struggled through to discern these doctrines and then to defend them. Uh, One phrase is the law of prayer is the law of faith. Hmm. That is, there should be correspondence between how we address God in Christ in worship and what we believe about God. And there was a disconnect, particularly with Arianism, to say, yeah, we'll worship him as the son of God, but we don't believe that he's fully divine in the sense of eternally self-existent creator. He's really just a creature, albeit tremendously glorified. That's inconsistency between the law of prayer and the law of faith. So his deity and particularly worship are at stake, it seems to me, hmm. as that phrase signifies. Another phrase um, is um what is uh un um i just lost it uh what is unhealed um you know the one i'm talking about what is not anyway, taking act- on is not healed pardon me is that the gregory Naz- Nazianzus yes. quote that everybody knows yeah yes which actually came from uh origin and then gregory um picked yeah. it up so the idea is there's no part of human life that that is um off limits for christ to take up or that is not taking on is not healed i think that's what is not assumed is not redeemed yes So that phrase, I think, signals that not just his deity, but his humanity is crucial and crucial to our salvation, because if there is some area of human life that is so corrupted that it's off limits to the incarnation, then that is essentially unredeemable, unhealable, and that has drastic consequences for uh, our salvation. So these phrases, I think, signal that our worship is at stake and our salvation is at stake. The other way I think of answering this question, and particularly the Trinitarian piece, would be to go to certain key passages of Scripture. So I would probably start with 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's statement, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, and say the resurrection is really at the heart of Christian gospel proclamation. So what then does the rest of Pauline teaching uh show us about this resurrected Christ and who he is? Well, Ephesians 1 is um, anchored in some important respects in the resurrection, but the chapter as a whole emphasizes our status in Christ by the same Spirit who powerfully raised him from the dead. We are now beloved by God as Father in Christ in Christ is there something like 11 times, depending on how you count a prepositional phrase or two. And so this relationship that we have with God as Father, by being brothers and sisters of the incarnate beloved Son of God, through being united to Him by the same powerful Holy Spirit that raised Him from the dead, that's a Trinitarian gospel proclamation, if ever there was one. And in crucial places in Ephesians 1, there are parallel statements that this is to the praise of God's glory. Hmm. And those parallel statements are associated with the Son and the Spirit. So we have this richly Trinitarian or at least proto-Trinitarian structure to Ephesians 1 that moves us from the resurrection as this apex event that validates the cross and makes it possible now for us to know the vindicated living Christ by the Spirit, and the way that we come to know God in Christ is in this richly Trinitarian um, salvation. And Romans 8 is a parallel passage, again, where in the spirit we are being conformed to Christ the Son because the triune God predestined us and the Father didn't spare his own Son but lovingly gave him up for us all. So it's not gentle Jesus meek and mild on our side against a wrathful, angry Father as if there's conflict between these divine persons. No, each of the persons of the triune Godhead together lovingly with one will, not three separate wills, Loving us and willing the incarnation for us and for our salvation. So I think it's there in the New Testament Mm -hmm. in seed form. And sometimes we become so familiar with it that maybe we don't teach it to others and we don't appreciate it ourselves, but our salvation reveals our God to be uh, profoundly loving in a Trinitarian way. That's awesome, Fred Sanders, I might mention. Fred yep. writes wonderful books on the yep. Trinity. Yep. And I think it's in one of his more popular books, The Deep Things of God, where he yep. says, look, evangelical piety, all of its instincts have been Trinitarian, whether we know how to use that word or not. Um, it's kind of hardwired into how we come to know gospel faith as evangelical Protestants. And so I think, you know, let's learn just a little bit of the language so that we can be mm. sure that our worship actually corresponds to mm. our faith and the salvation that we that we enjoy. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's that's helpful on so many
0: fronts, and that that is the impetus for our worship. It's not as if you can divorce um, doctrinal understanding or a creedal statements or confessional statements or learning about Christ. It's even the New Testament itself, like you said, when Paul is writing. He moves from this doctrine and he's not like, okay, now I'm on the, pra- he moves it and he's like, I have to praise. I, it's not yes. like I move from teaching into praising. It's like, I, this is what I do. This is in yeah. response to what I hear. This is what I say. Um, well, Dr. Trier, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for writing this book, for continuing with this series that I think everybody thought was dormant for a little bit. And then all of a sudden pops out Dr. Trier's work. So thank you. Just so a little f-
1: pandemic delay. <laughs> yeah,
0: No, no worries. So, Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for writing on this, for all of your
1: work. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Thanks for the invitation and the good questions. I enjoyed it. Thank of course. You.
0: Hey, I hope you enjoyed this week's book club episode where we spotlight a specific book from a publisher and an author that both Nick and I really enjoy. We don't always agree with everything that the author uh, or the book comes about, but what they do share with us is love for Christ and his gospel. From whatever tradition they come from, whatever creedal tradition they come from, or confessional tradition, uh, we all do share the same broader ecumenical Christian faith. From different backgrounds, ethnicities, and and denominations. Uh, We we hope that these introduce books that you might not have heard of before, authors that you might not have heard of before. Um, I've been uh, really helped by learning about some of these. If you want to go to our show notes, find a link to the publisher. That helps them out a ton. A link to the author's page, to the book, to purchase it from the publisher themselves. It really helps them um, expose their work uh, through the publisher themselves.
2: Yeah, and the value that we're bringing with these book clubs is you guys can really rely on us because as we all know, it takes a lot of time and effort to stay on top of all the books that are coming out and know which ones are probably good to look into, be recommended to read, look out for. And so these uh, these episodes are to wet your palate. You can, we have already know that we're going to recommend this book, but you can um, listen to the episode yourself, get a little more understanding of the book and the author, and then go from there. Yeah.
0: So if you want to find these books and uh, and purchase one for yourself, purchase one for friends or family, and also too, if you can find us on Apple, Spotify, any podcast catcher, rate and review us. That's that's how we're that's how we're best known. Is how we kind of make ourselves known. Uh, introduce these to a friend and and maybe just build your bookcase, build your reading, uh, read broader and and read really well, all under the umbrella of our creedle faith under Jesus Christ.